John 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested, as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God that you have given to us, accessible to us. It is near us, and we know that this word is a word of truth. It is a word from heaven. It is the word of life. And the only way of eternal life is for you to work through this word, your Holy Spirit working through the word that is read and preached. We pray that you will help us this evening to understand the significance of what your Spirit does in using this Word to save us from our sins. And may our thoughts be in line with your thoughts. And help us, Lord, to arise above the flesh, arise above the world and the devil, and anything that we may have heard before, may we set it aside and with a fair mind look at your Word and analyze it like the Bereans. Help us all to be that way on this subject and any subject that your word treats. Draw near to us, Lord, and help us to have this attitude 
and grant us that we would be filled with your spirit and guided into all truth. For we ask in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, this first message will be based on the passage that we have just read. The next message will be more topical, and we will cover matters of the Old Testament, specifically looking at verses in the Old Testament related to the work and, and person of the Holy Spirit. This passage was chosen because, as Jesus said in John 3.10 to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? If we're going to understand salvation, if we're going to understand our own conversion, if we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to understand the Holy Spirit, we need to understand based on what Jesus says about it. The Lord Jesus, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets according to 1 Timothy or excuse me, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. And Christ here is teaching Nicodemus. It's his words right here to Nicodemus. And this passage was also chosen because this passage is before the day of Pentecost. John chapter 3, canonically, is before Acts chapter 2. And John chapter 3, chronologically, is before Acts chapter 2. John 3 is before Acts 2. So therefore, what Nicodemus should have understood, because Jesus rebukes him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? What Nicodemus should have understood would have been based on the Old Testament. Would have been based on the Old Testament. So he should have had that understanding, that comprehension himself. As well, being a teacher, he should have been able to teach others when he taught the Old Testament. He should have been able to teach others. Because if he does not understand it himself, and if he is ill-equipped to teach others, why is he a teacher? He has no place being a teacher. No place saying anything because he does not understand salvation. He does not understand his own salvation, and he cannot lead sinful men to salvation. That means that what we read in this passage should all have been understood based on the Old Testament alone. So let's see some of these truths that Nicodemus should have understood based on the Old Testament alone. This evening we will primarily focus on this passage and later during Q&A and tomorrow we will look more in depth at Old Testament passages. So first, the rebuke. We, what should we all know before the day of Pentecost about the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to our salvation? John 2, 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. In this passage, at the end of chapter 2, we will note that not every believer is a true believer. Not everyone who says he has faith has a genuine faith. Because it says in verse 23, when he was there... Many believed in him. Many believed in what he said and what he did at the feast of the Passover. There would have been huge crowds coming to celebrate the Passover. Not just within Israel, but also from around the world. They would have come to Jerusalem. So many people would have been there. And notice what it says. They believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. Because of the miracles that he performed, they believed in his name. But was this a true belief? Was it merely an intellectual belief? Was it a factual belief? 
Was it, or was it a belief unto salvation? Was it a belief that led to the saving of their souls and the forgiveness of their sins? And in this passage, the answer is no. Look at 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. 23 says they believed in him, but 24 and 25, those verses say Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in him that he was a miracle worker sent from God, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not trust them because verse 24, he knew all men. He did not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness or testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that these crowds, the many in the crowds, that they had a false faith. He knew that. They just believed some aspect of who he was or some aspect of what he did. They did not have true trust and belief. They did not want to repent of their sins. They did not want to acknowledge that they needed him to die on the cross for their sins. That did not happen to them. That's why Jesus does not entrust himself to them. We know it's important for us to know God. It's important for us to trust God. But it's more important for God to know us and for God to trust what is in us. And in this case, God did not. God the Son, Jesus Christ, did not trust them. He did not believe in them because he knew they had a false faith, a bogus belief. He knew what was really inside them. Now we have, in chapter 3, a personal example of what we just read about the crowds. We have an individual, Nicodemus, and the same is true of him. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man is of the Pharisees. The Pharisees was one sect or one group within the leadership, the religious leadership of ancient Israel that taught the people. They studied the scriptures and they taught the people. This sect, in comparison to the Sadducees and in comparison to the Herodians, the Zealots, this sect was, comparatively speaking, a better one because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that the Bible was the word of God. All of the Old Testament was the word of God. They knew that the Bible spoke of eternal matters. They knew that the Bible spoke of a Messiah, a Christ, a personal Christ who would come into the world. They knew and believed all these things. However, no matter what they believed in truth about those things, in this case, Nicodemus, he did not have a right heart. He did not understand the true gospel. He did not. And Jesus proceeds to show him that he did not and explain he did not. This Nicodemus, eventually we read of him some more in chapter 7, verse 50, and chapter 19, verse 39, here in the book of John, these three times. And it appears that gradually he comes to understand more and more, and perhaps by chapter 19, verse 39, he's not coming to Jesus or coming to a situation of Christ in the dark, but in the open, because Jesus has died and he is concerned about matters related to Christ's death. And now at that point in, in the open, but not here. He comes in the dark. 
But also, verse 1 says that he's a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews means that he, as well as his other uh, contemporaries or colleagues in this council, in the Sanhedrin council of the Jewish people, who had the ability to teach the people, they had the notoriety to teach the people, they had the position to teach the people. He is one of those rulers that made legal decisions based on the law of Moses, religious and legal decisions based on the law of Moses, and they would teach the people. They would teach them all kinds of details, all kinds of minute matters related to the law and significant matters of the law. This is what they were in charge of doing. So he had great respect, he had great authority, and he should have been well-trained. But Jesus knows that this is not the case. He is not well-trained. Verse 2, this man came to him by night. He came by night. Now, in Judges 6.27, we have an example of Gideon going by night. And the text there says, in Judges 6.27, he went by night because he was afraid to do what God commanded him to do in the daytime. So he went by night. Likely, that's what's going on with Nicodemus. He's afraid. He does not have courage. He is ashamed of Christ. He doesn't really believe in Christ. Because if somebody really believes in Christ, he will speak up. And he will take on any kind of persecution. Any kind of jeering and criticism that the people might keep upon him. He will deal with it. But he's not willing. He's not ready to deal with it. He comes by night. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak. So here, he is not willing to speak up and to do whatever is necessary as the situation requires. And he comes by night. Christ knows all this. That's why verse 2 and following. Nicodemus starts this discussion. Rabbi... We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He gives him this, Nicodemus gives to Christ this notable title, Rabbi. Rabbi. This would have been an official position. It would be similar today to being called a clergyman or a pastor or a bishop, something like that. He had authority, he had position in the religious community, and he was called as a teacher. They would go to him and consult him. But in this case, even though Jesus does not have the kind of training that Nicodemus has, he does not have the official training that Nicodemus has and other Pharisees and Sadducees had at the time, though he did not go through the schools of the rabbis, Nicodemus knows that what Jesus says is good and it is many of the things he's heard and many of the things Jesus has done is in harmony with the Bible, with the Old Testament. He knows that. That's why he calls him rabbi. And he says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know that. Presumably, he and a few others with whom he consulted, they have come to that realization that Jesus has come from God as a teacher. And why is Jesus coming to God as a teacher? Why is he convinced for no one, or because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The signs that Jesus performed, the miracles he performed, these supernatural acts he performed, 
were not those that did harm to people. The devil, when he does something supernatural, he possesses uh, individuals, and when he possesses them, he makes their life miserable because he loves death and he loves misery. But when Jesus performed miracles, that didn't happen. People who were mute and dumb, they were able to speak. People who were blind, they were able to see. People who were dead were brought to life. This is what Jesus did. And obviously, the hand of God is on Christ. He knows this. And this is true. He knew that Jesus was from God, a teacher. He performed genuine signs, beneficial signs, and God was with Christ. He understood these religious facts, these spiritual truths. He understood them. However, he was not a believer. He was not a true believer. He was a bogus believer. This is why Jesus answers in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, truly, truly, this is emphasizing the statement he is about to make. Truly, truly, this is a solemn statement. It's a true statement I'm about to make. And who is it speaking? I say to you, using the authority that he has as the Son of God and sent by God, he says, I say to you, you better listen to what I say to you. I, the Lord Jesus, have to say. And what is it? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He confronts Nicodemus. He does not succumb to Nicodemus' flattery. He does not succumb to this positive and correct statement that Nicodemus made. He, Jesus does not succumb to it. Jesus hits the nail on the head. He takes the sword and, and, and thrusts it into the gut of Nicodemus, the spiritual sword or the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. This is what he does in Nicodemus. He tells him immediately, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which implies, Nicodemus, you are not born again, and you cannot see the kingdom of God because you're not born again. Because you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This presents the question, is the biblical sequence of salvation that we are born again to see or do we see, or, and even if we see a little bit, we see, and that produces us uh, a rebirth, or that makes us born again. Do we see first to produce a rebirth, or regeneration, a new heart, or in the Bible is it that we are born again, we receive a new heart, our heart is circumcised or changed from being stony to tender, is that what happens first, and then we see and then we act in good ways and spiritual ways. What is the biblical sequence? We see in verse 3, we have to be born again to see. Right. We have to be born again to see. He uses the analogy of birth, of natural birth. In natural birth, do infants in the womb see? No, they cannot see. They don't see light and so on and so forth. Their eyes aren't open. That happens once they come out of the womb. They have to be born into the world to see the world. They don't see the world in the womb. They have to be born in the literal, natural way in order to see. 
And in the same way, Jesus is saying here, we must be born again. That is, our Father, who has to adopt us, our Father in heaven has to adopt us, and we have to become a part of His family as His child for Him to open our eyes to see the kingdom of God, to see and to enter into and experience the kingdom of God. Did Nicodemus understand this? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus does not look at it in the unseen world sense of what Jesus meant. He does not look at it in spiritual terms. He looks at it in physical terms. He thinks Jesus is talking about going and into the mother's womb again and coming out again. And that unless that happens, then we cannot see the kingdom of God. He did not take the Bible in the true spiritual sense. The Bible, to him, as well as many of the Jews, was for the physical world. The Bible to them, the Old Testament to them, was not for the spiritual world. It was not for spiritual realities. It was for physical realities. They were more interested in peace. Peace from war, progeny, having many children, and also being well-fed and having their stomachs full. This is what was interesting to them. This is what they lived for day by day. They didn't live for the unseen spiritual world because the natural man, the natural man, the regular man that comes out of the womb in his natural condition, being corrupt and dead spiritually, he doesn't think about the spiritual world in the correct way. He doesn't contemplate the spiritual world in the correct way. He does not understand the spiritual world in relation to what the Bible is saying. He lives for the here and now. And Nicodemus was no different. He was no different. That's why his answer to Christ was a physical answer. So Jesus clarifies verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary to be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that would be the same analogy as he said in verse 3. We have to be born again. We have to have this birth to enter into the world in the physical reality. Is that not the case? We have to be born physically and naturally to come into the world, to enter into the world. Well, how does one enter into God's eternal world, in God's spiritual world, in God's spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God? It has to also happen by water and the Spirit. That has to happen first before we can enter. Unless we are born again, we cannot enter that kingdom. So the rebirth has to precede the entrance. Regeneration precedes entrance. This is the biblical sequence. Now, when he says born of water and the spirit, this has been interpreted in many, many ways. And I think that one or two of these many interpretations are possible here. And either interpretation will not contradict other parts of Scripture. This is a very important principle of interpretation that whatever we conclude from this verse, we cannot make it contradict another part of the Bible. 
We cannot. Otherwise, we are, by practice, denying that the Holy Spirit gave us the whole Bible because we assume the Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. So verse 5, I think the likely interpretation is that when he says born of water and the Spirit, he's using water as an analogy or a picture of the Spirit. Water as a picture or analogy of the Spirit. And in fact, this word and from the original language into English could be rendered even or that is, that is water, comma, that is, comma, the Spirit. I'm saying water because you know Nicodemus, you should know Nicodemus, that the Old Testament uses water as a picture of the Holy Spirit, such as in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God says to the people that he will sprinkle water on them, clean water on them, and then he mentions the Holy Spirit. When he says he's going to sprinkle clean water on them, he's not talking about literal water. He's talking about the Spirit in that way. And in fact, even in the book of John, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as water. John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There we see that Jesus uses this analogy of water to say he's talking about the Spirit. And I think that is the same in John 3, verse 5. However, another valid interpretation may be that by water he means the Word, the Word of God. Because in Ephesians 5.26, he speaks of the church having been washed with uh, water by the Word. Washed with water by the Word. So water and the Word are used there as synonyms, as an analogy of the way that God works to cleanse his church. And that may be the interpretation of this verse as well. Now verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice here, in this verse, in order to make sure we not misinterpret verse 5, he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Whatever we think of verse 5 and the term water, we cannot make that water be a literal water that saves anybody from sin. Because he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It has to be something spiritual and unseen, miraculous, by the Holy Spirit that changes the person's heart. And if we are born of the spirit, if the spirit causes that to happen, then we are spiritual. That's why he says, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In John 6, 63, Jesus says similarly, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The water of verse 5 cannot be anything literal. It has to be something spiritual, some, such as the Holy Spirit himself or the Word of God, which is a spiritual source 
of our salvation. Because only if we are born of the Spirit will there be life. As well, he's already told us, John the Apostle has already told us in John 1. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He says in 12 that the ones who are children of God are those who believe in his name. Then he tells us what caused that belief to occur. What preceded that belief? Verse 13, who were born? How did we become children of God? Who were born? What caused that? Not of blood, not our lineage, not our genealogy, not our ancestry, nothing our forefathers did, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh, that's our will. That's the way we are born into the world. That which, is of the, um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He says, not the will of the flesh. Our will in its natural condition cannot produce our rebirth. Right. Nor the will of man. Not another man helping me can save me from my sins. It's not his will or his death or his goodness that can be reckoned to my account. Nothing like that can happen. But of God. We have to be born of God. What caused us to be children of God? What caused us to believe in His name? John 1.13, because we were born of God. If we're born of God, we will believe. Verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but... Do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus reiterates this fact that we have to be born of the Spirit. He does does not say born of the Spirit and water baptism, born of the Spirit or anything else. He just says born of the Spirit. And he's saying that to emphasize and to clarify what he said in verse 5. He says it in verse 6, born of the Spirit. And in verse 8, born of the Spirit. And he illustrates. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. We all know that. We cannot control the wind. We cannot predict the wind. We, we do not know how it swirls and how it goes here and there, which way the leaves are going to turn, which way this or that's going to happen and the dust is going to blow. All those kinds of things are unpredictable to us. We do not have power to control those things. Now, if the wind does that, if the natural wind does that, should it surprise us that the Holy Spirit, who is also invisible, who also works mysteriously in the hearts of men, that He would do that? That He would act that way? That He would have the power to do whatever He wants, where, uh, to whomever He wants, however He wants, whenever He wants, whether in this nation and another nation, whether in a male or a female, an old man or a young man, it doesn't matter who it is. Should it surprise us? No. Remember, the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 was hovering over the surface of the waters. He was involved with the physical creation of the world in Genesis 1-2. And then in Genesis 6-3, God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Genesis 6, 3. 
shall not strive with man forever. In what way is the spirit in conflict with man or striving with man? In what way? In a spiritual sense. So if the spirit works in a physical sense in Genesis 1-2, it should not surprise us that he works in a spiritual sense in Genesis 6-3, physical and spiritual. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 8. The spirit creates a new creature however and wherever he wishes. And no one can overcome his power when he does so, just like we cannot overcome the power of the wind. Verses 9 and following. Let's see how Nicodemus was completely benighted about all of this. Completely. He did not understand. 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? He's still incredulous. He's still very clueless about all of this. Although, remember, he is a teacher and he should know. And if he is a teacher and he does not know, he should not presume to open his mouth to teach anybody anything because he doesn't even know about salvation, the true understanding and meaning of salvation. He cannot save his own soul because he does not have the right faith and right knowledge and he cannot help anybody else. He's a miserable man. And Jesus confronts him on this kind of misery. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do not understand these things. There he says it, right to his face. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? You are one of the notables. You are one of the most knowledgeable in the whole nation. And you don't understand these things? You should understand these things. Notice, he should understand all these things. He should have been born again. He should have been able to teach others. All of this based on the Old Testament alone. The New Testament was not written by this point. This is still during Jesus' ministry. The New Testament was not composed, even though Jesus had been preaching. And as well, based on the Old Testament alone, he should have known this. He should have known on that basis. Before the day of Pentecost, and based on the Old Testament. And because he did not know, Jesus confronts him, because he had no business doing what he was doing. He further clarifies that Nicodemus is lost. 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Jesus and his disciples spoke about what they knew. Nicodemus did not speak about what he knew. He spoke in ignorance about these things. Jesus and his disciples testified about things that they have actually seen. He says, we have seen. That means that they were born again. Not that Jesus had to be born again, but his disciples did. They had to be born again because they were born again. They were able to see the kingdom of God, and they all testified to that. They were able to testify, and you... You, Nicodemus, do not receive our witness. He tells Nicodemus, you have not received what we've been testifying about. We've been telling you solemnly, before God, honestly, forthrightly, all the truths, and you're not willing to believe in it. You are out there listening to all this testimony from us as witnesses of the facts, and you're not even 
believing in it. You don't even understand it all. You're still in a cloud and in, the com in complete darkness. And 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, there, categorically, Jesus calls him an unbeliever. Right. You do not believe. You do not believe. And notice, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, I gave you earthly analogies. I gave you earthly analogies and you still didn't get it. I gave you the one about the womb, about natural birth and the connection to spiritual birth. And I gave you the one about the wind and the Holy Spirit and you still don't believe. I told you earthly things and you do not believe. I cannot. If you won't understand with these physical examples, how can I talk to you just straight spiritual truths, conceptually? How can I talk to you conceptually just about spiritual things? I can't, because you won't even see the connection between the physical and the spiritual. Then Jesus speaks of who he is and the necessity of believing in him. 13. And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that is Christ himself, referring to himself in the third person, he says, I am the only one who has descended from heaven to be able to save you from your sins. I am the only one able to save you from your sins. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended. I am the only one that came from heaven to save from sin. And 14, how will I save from sin? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes reference, allusion, to Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. In Numbers 21, 4 to 9, when the people were rebellious under Moses, at one point God sent poisonous snakes among them, serpents or poisonous snakes among them. And the snakes killed many of them, and others of them were sick and about to die. And Moses was told, commanded by God, to put a bronze serpent, a bronze serpent on a pole, so that whoever looks at the bronze serpent will live. Now, was that merely for physical life or was it also for spiritual life? Well, Jesus assumes that Nicodemus would understand that it wasn't merely about them surviving physically from the poisonous snakes. Jesus assumes that what Moses was teaching them was that your physical life is preserved because you believe in salvation. You believe that what this pole represents, the serpent on the pole represents, is actually what the coming Christ will accomplish when he is lifted up on the cross. That, that's what you should believe. Now, for us, not raised in a Jewish environment, not raised in that kind of environment, we might think, that this is a spurious passage. This is quite an alarming and a misleading way to interpret the Old Testament. 
that Moses did this, and this is supposed to represent Christ, and this is supposed to represent the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, we might think that way, especially if we have not studied the Scriptures, and also issues related to the Scriptures, these verses. And actually, though, this was understood in ancient Judaism, in the time of Christ, and before the time of Christ, and after the time of Christ. This was understood through various testimonies of ancient authors, and even from a, a, a couple of translations. The Aramaic translation of Numbers 21, the Aramaic translation, or the Targums, translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the ancient Aramaic language. In that translation, there are references or brief comments made to the fact that it wasn't merely physical death that those people were healed of. They were also healed of their souls. They were healed of their spiritual death and they received salvation when they looked to that bronze serpent. Nicodemus would have known about those writings. He would have known that that was a very common Jewish understanding of that passage in the book of Numbers chapter 21 and that it even had reference to the coming of Christ. That the Messiah, they even referred to the Messiah as a serpent, as even as a fiery serpent. That the Messiah had this analogy or metaphor used of him by the Jews themselves. This is why there's no objection, there's no need for Jesus to continue and explain, because it would have been common knowledge to Nicodemus and his contemporaries that Jesus was interpreting that passage correctly. The main issue was, was Jesus of Nazareth the fulfillment of that passage? Was he the Messiah, the hope for Messiah? Was he the one? They knew it was messianic. The question was, did Jesus fulfill it? And that's why Jesus says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ must have, will have eternal life if they believe in him. And that's where Nicodemus had not gone. He had not reached that point to believe in Christ. 16 now. 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. It says in 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved, God loved the world in such a way or so much that He gave His only begotten Son. His one and only Son God gave into the world. And give in this sense means that He would die on the cross. That was already referenced in verses 14 and 15. That He would die on the cross. And so in God giving his son to the world, what is the result or the consequence of God giving his son to the world? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ does not perish but has eternal life. It is a requirement that whoever hears the gospel believe the gospel. It's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough just to know some truths about it. We've already seen that in the case of Nicodemus. We saw that in the case of the crowds from the previous chapter, 223 to 25. It's not 
enough merely to know some facts about Christ. We must actually believe in Him to avoid perishing and to receive eternal life. We perish in our sins, we perish in our wickedness if we do not believe in Him. Furthermore, the verse says, whoever believes in Him. This expression, this relative pronoun, whoever, has been misunderstood. It says, whoever believes. So this states that it's necessary to believe to have the eternal life. So we must believe. Whoever believes does not mean everyone does believe or everyone can believe. It doesn't say that. The verse does not say everyone can believe. It says whoever believes. Whoever believes is, is descriptive. It's indicative. It's just describing what's necessary to have eternal life and to avoid perishing. Whoever believes. The verse does not say everyone can believe. It does not say that. It does not say that in English. It does not say that in Greek. It does not say that in any valid translation. It does not say everyone can believe or is able to believe, is capable of believing. It doesn't say that. In fact, based on what we've just studied in chapter 3 and based on chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, based on chapter 6, verse 63, and based on many other passages of the Scripture, we know everyone can believe. Because not everyone is born again. That doesn't happen. If they are born again, then they will believe. That is the sequence. But everyone is not born again. And if they're not born again, that's because God has not adopted them. God has not made them His children. God has not changed their heart. He hasn't given them new life. He hasn't done anything like that to quicken them, to awaken them, to have their eyes open, spiritual eyes open, spiritual ears open, spiritual hearts open. He hasn't done anything like that for them to believe in what they read and hear in the Bible. God has to first do that. Then they will believe. But if they don't have that happening, they won't believe. They will not. Now let me demonstrate this from another place in Scripture, from 1 John, that it is necessary for the rebirth to happen first before other godly things happen after that. Godly in in the sense of acceptable to God. 1 John... 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. 2.29, the last verse. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of Him. God is righteous, Christ is righteous. You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now tell me, Does this verse imply that we practice righteousness and then we obtain this rebirth? Or is this verse saying that we have to be born of Him and the evidence that we are born of Him is that we practice righteousness? It is the latter. We are born of Him and then it's manifested that we practice righteousness. It's not our righteousness that saves us and gives us rebirth. In fact, it says in Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which he has done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit is what saves us. It's not deeds which we have done in righteousness. Well, that's confirmed here in 1 John 2.29. The rebirth produces the practicing of righteousness. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verse 9. 3.9. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Verse 9 at the beginning. No one who is born of God practices sin. So that means... We, if we are born of God, we do not practice sins. It does not mean we stop practicing sins and then we're born of God. It's not teaching that. And why? Because it says in 9, His seed abides in Him. God gives us His spiritual seed in us, and when He gives that seed in us, then we cannot sin because we are born of God. John tells us the sequence right there again. We have to be reborn to avoid practicing sin. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love, and he says that we ought to love one another, because love is from God. Verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Is he saying that if we love one another, then God will make us born again? Or is he saying that if we are born of God, or since we are born of God, we love one another? He is saying it originates with God to know God and for God to love us first and then we love God and also we love one another. It has to come first from God. 4.19, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. What's the sequence here? In 19 it says, we love because he first loved us. God has to first love us. And then verse 21, the one who loves God, then we love God. And after we love God, we love one another. That's the sequence. God loves us. We love him, and then we love one another. One, two, three. Then chapter 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves a child born of him. What's the sequence in verse uh, 5? Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, categorically, we have our topic. That is, what is first? Is faith first and then rebirth? Or is rebirth first 
and then faith. According to 5.1, just as we saw in the rest of 1 John, we have to be born of God, and if we're born of God, then we will believe that Jesus is the Christ. You see, Nicodemus was not born of God. That's why he did not believe in Christ as his Redeemer, as his mediator, who of necessity had to die on the cross for Nicodemus' sins. He didn't believe because he was not reborn. If he was reborn of God, he would have believed in Christ. 1 John 5, 1. And not only would he have done that, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Nicodemus would have also, if he had loved the Father, would have loved Christ. But up to that point in his life, he had not any love of Christ. Now let's return to chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. 317, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In 17, the world that is not judged or condemned is the world that is saved. Notice that. The world that is not judged is the world that is saved. And the world that is saved became saved because they believed in Christ. Verse 16. Verse 16. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And God's purpose in sending His Son was to specifically save this world of believers. He came to save this world of believers. He did not come to save everyone, but this world of believers. It's explicit there in verses 16 and 17. Now, someone might say, well, the world, it says world. If it says world, then world means world. World means every person in the world. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Let's look at a few examples in the book of John where even John does not use this term world or all men or all to mean every individual, but to mean a group of individuals, whether a good group or a bad group. And in these examples we'll see these are a, a group of bad people or unbelievers. The first example is chapter 11 and verse 48. 11, 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The chief priests and the Pharisees are taking counsel with each other about what to do to Jesus. And they say, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Did they mean by all men that everyone in the world would believe in him? No, because they're not going to believe in him. And many people had died up to that point in the world from the time of Adam until Christ. They did not think that those people, all who preceded them in generations past, they were going to believe in Christ because they're dead and gone. So by all men they mean a whole lot of people. That's what they really mean by all men in 1148. Chapter 12 and verse 19. 1219. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. And in this case, they mean the world of his disciples, the world of believers, they've gone after him. They don't mean that they have gone after him. So they have excluded themselves from this category of the world. They excluded themselves from that category. And of course, 
all who died before, and all in the future who do not ever believe in him. They just mean that numerous people have gone after Christ. That's what they mean by the world. Chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 18. Someone may say, 15, 18. Someone may say, well, those are examples of unbelievers using that word. Well, let's see what Jesus says. 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world who hates the disciples does not include the disciples. The world that hates the disciples, according to Jesus' own words, and his use of this term, the world, he means the world of unbelievers hate you. The world of those people who are not born again, they hate you. Jesus used that term in a specific way. Not in a comprehensive way that is every individual or every person who ever lives. Another one, chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 20. Our Lord again says, 1620, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. While Jesus is dead and buried, temporarily, he says, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Temporarily, for those three days, the disciples will be sorrowful, but then they're going to be full of joy when the resurrection takes place. The world will rejoice. Who's the world? The world of unbelievers who were living at that time in, and in that locality, there in Jerusalem and its environs, who knew of what Jesus was claiming. Right? The world at that point, in Jesus' words, 1620, does not mean everybody who lived on the globe at that time, only those who were knowing, knowing anything about what was happening in that place in the Roman Empire. That's what he meant by world. Furthermore, chapter 17. Chapter 17. Verse 9. 17.9 Jesus prays, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says, when he prays for the salvation of people, he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. I ask on their behalf, but not on the world's behalf. He's not praying for the world to come to him. He's praying for God's chosen ones to come to him. And how do we know he means chosen ones? Look at chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. There he says, those who believe in me through their word. I'm not asking only for my contemporary disciples, but I'm also asking for subsequent disciples in future generations that they will come to Christ because you have given them to me, 17 verse 9. If God gives them to Christ, they will come to Christ. They will be born again and they will believe because the Spirit will work in them and use that word that was preached to bring them to Christ. Jesus uses this term, the world, 
in this limited, specific way. Back to chapter 3 and verse 18. 318. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If we do not believe in Christ, we are judged or condemned. And we're condemned already. Yes, our condemnation is on our head right now. But it will be manifested and exposed on the day of judgment. That's what he means. It is already on our heads now if we do not believe. Because we have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. The one and only, the unique Son of God. The only Savior of the world. 19. And this is the judgment or the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Why should they be condemned, he says. He explains why they should be condemned. Because they loved darkness rather than light. They did not want their evil deeds, their dark and devilish deeds that are done secretly, inwardly. They hide it from men, but they don't want it exposed. They don't want those evil deeds exposed, therefore they will not come to the light. He says in 20, in fact, it's not just that they don't come, they hate it. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. He, they do evil because they hate the light. That's why they do not come. And they do not come because they don't want any light manifested on their evil deeds. They have no humility. They have no desire to repent of sins. They, in fact, want to harbor their sins. They love their sins and they hate God. Specifically, they hate our Lord Jesus Christ. They hate Him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12, 30. Yes, they actually hate Him because they don't do anything productive with Him. And verse 21. Now the opposite. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Whoever practices the truth comes to the light. But how is it that one actually practices the truth? Since it's said in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, that if we practice, um, no one who is born of, God, born of God practices sin. So then how can we begin practicing the truth? We have to be born of God to practice the truth. And if we practice the truth, and this happens very quickly, in, the term, in terms of once God opens our eyes and causes a rebirth, then we think of Christ and we understand we need Him. We need His death on the cross as a penalty for our sins. Because we are unrighteous, we need His righteousness. And then we come to the light. Coming to the light is believing in the light. Coming to Christ means to believe in Christ. As He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Christ is synonymous with believing in Christ. That Therefore, we need to be born again. And even verse 21, John 3, 21 says that the way that we practice the truth and come to the light is because 
our deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God, having been done in God. Now he comes back full circle to where he started in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Yes, we need to be children of God. Yes, we need to believe in his name. But how does that happen if we're born of God? So how do we practice the truth and come to the light? Only if it's done in God. If God is the one who changes us and creates in us a new heart, circumcises our hearts, and causes us to love Him, we'll love Him. That's the way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.